This is episode 296 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's articles are Stand, Move, or Seek Cover, What Works in a Gunfight, and What's the Most Important Thing a Senior Brings to a Survival Group. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before we get started, I want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. It's time to finally advance your preparedness goals. Get the ebook and join the forums. Go to microbiz.biz for more information. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get started. Our first article comes to us from ActiveResponseTraining.net. And the title of the article is Stand, Move, or Seek Cover, What Works in a Gunfight. And Greg over there is a police officer. He actually trains police officers in firearms. And uh, he's using some of his experience uh, to do a little bit of an experiment. And uh, it's kind of interesting here. So if you ever uh, find yourself... Uh, on the giving end of uh, of you know self defense, or you are on the receiving end. This is both uh, both ways. This is some information here that you definitely need to remember. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. As the full time training officer and firearm instructor for my police department, I often have the opportunity to attend firearm training sessions from some of the best trainers in the world. I have noticed that most of these trainers teach students to shoot their firearms while moving, with the premise being that a student is less likely to be struck by incoming fire if he or she is a moving target. In addition to shooting on the move, almost all trainers advocate moving to cover in a gunfight if said cover is nearby. These two techniques seem to be very logical. Most people would agree that making yourself a moving target and seeking bullet-resistant cover could only help one's chances of winning a gunfight. Having an inquisitive mind, however, I've always wondered exactly how much of an advantage one would expect to gain over his opponent through the use of movement and cover. To answer this question, I began an exhaustive search of hundreds of firearm tactic books and countless accounts of police-involved shootings looking for examples where utilizing movement or cover saved a person's life during a gunfight. During my search, I found many instances where officers and civilians reported that they used cover and or movement to help them win a fight or firefight. I also found quite a few articles and books extolling the perceived benefits of cover and movement. I did not, however, find any concrete scientific evidence describing any quantifiable advantages of using movement or cover in a gunfight. The question remained, which is the best tactic to use in a gunfight? Remain stationary, move, or seek cover? Because I couldn't find the type of information I wanted, I designed a scientific experiment to get my own data. Besides training law enforcement officers, I also teach firearm skills at the Tactical Defense Institute, a shooting school in southern Ohio. John Benner, the owner and chief instructor at TDI, was very supportive of the idea of my experiment and was curious what the data might show. He suggested that the ideal test subjects would be in his soon-to-be-held Final Intensive Scenario Training, or FIST class. 
The students enrolled in this class were highly trained, all having graduated at least six levels, 10 days worth, of TDI's handgun curriculum. Most had additional training from other shooting schools as well. John graciously allowed me to perform my experiment during a segment of the two-day FISC course. So here's the experiment. The test I conducted was loosely based on some training drills created by Sam Faulkner, an innovative training or trainer recently retired from the Ohio Peace Officers Training Academy. The experiment had three phases. During each phase, one student faced another with a distance of 15 feet separating them. Each student was outfitted with safety gear and armed with a 38 caliber revolver loaded with two Code Eagle brand marking cartridges. For those of you unfamiliar with this technology, the marking cartridge is a 38 paintball or 38 caliber paintball powered by a special primed plastic case. It chambers in any 38 revolver without modification and shoots the paintball at approximately 300 feet per second. The rounds produce a sharp stinging sensation and a bright smear of red paint on the bodies of the people who are hit. Obviously, it is necessary to wear protective face shields when using these rounds in order to prevent eye injuries. In prior training exercises, I found the Code Eagle rounds to be very valuable in gunfight simulations. They are reasonably accurate and produce quite a pain penalty to the person who is struck. Anticipation of even the small amount of pain these projectiles generate causes considerable anxiety for most, most people. This anxiety at least particularly duplicates the stress reaction one is likely to experience in a gunfight. In the first phase of the experiment, shooters were given orders to fire their two rounds at each other as quickly as possible after a surprise start signal was given. I instructed the students to remain stationary during the simulated gunfight. Absolutely no movement of the feet was allowed. Phase 2 was identical to the first phase, except that students were allowed free movement, forward, backward, or lateral, after I gave the surprise start signal. In Phase 3, students started a step away from one of two 55-gallon steel drums. These drums were to simulate cover. On the start command, students were instructed to move to their steel drum and use it for cover while engaging their respective adversaries. So here are the results. A total of 19 students participated in the experiment. 114 rounds were fired, with 38 rounds fired per phase. I tracked and compared hit percentages during all three phases, differentiating between hits on the torso and the more peripheral hits on the arms and legs. The data are as follows. All right, so uh, there's three columns here. So like phase, hit rate, and torso rate. So phase one, number one, which was standing, the hit rate was 85%. The tor and torso hits were 51%. All right, so in moving, phase two, which was moving, the hit rate dropped to 47%, and the tor torso hits were only 11%. That's a big, that's a real big drop there. Um, the hit rate was, I mean, almost 50% drop there. Uh, not quite, but almost. And then the torso hits, I mean, that's a big drop uh, there. All right, so number three, I mean, going from 51% to 11%. So number three, using cover, That's this was phase three, using cover. The hit rate was 26%, uh, and then the torso hits was only 6%. Wow, that's uh, some dramatic drops there. So the lessons learned. The students who participated in my study were as surprised by the results as I was. 
We all expected that movement and the use of cover would reduce the hit rates of the rounds fired. We were astonished, however, at how much difference moving and seeking cover made. The difference in hit rates between standing and moving cannot be explained away by a lack of skill by the shooters. Each shooter had extensively practiced shooting on the move, with most being able to hit a 12-inch steel plate on demand any distance inside of 50 feet while moving. Similarly, these students are adept at hitting a moving target while standing still. The critical factor seemed to be the difficulty the shooter experienced in hitting a moving target while moving his own body at the same time. This clearly identifies a need for additional training and highlights the critical importance of making yourself a moving target during a gunfight. If highly trained shooters hit their opponent's torsos with only 11% of rounds fired, Imagine how much worse the average street thug with no training and minimal experience will perform under similar conditions. This is one of those uh, reasons why when you, we're talking about active shooter uh, drills and things like that, where the, you know, it's run, hide, fight. The first thing is run. You have uh, a, a great possibility of getting out of there because even you know, the, like this article is proving even people that are highly trained Still, you know, with, with that expectation that, you know, people are also firing at you and, and you're moving and all those types of things, it makes it so much, uh, so much harder to hit. Uh, I know that in Sandy Hook, uh, one of the, one of the things, you know, one of the kids was just ran past, uh, you know, the shooter and, you know, the shooter didn't do anything about that, you know, and they're just not that skilled, you know, they're more just kind of, uh, shooting and praying, you know, spraying and praying, I guess is, is, is what I'm trying to say, uh, on that, you know? And so very interesting, important information to, uh, to remember here. All right. So uh, continuing on, it is also clear that when students used cover, they fared even better than they did while moving. The hit rates would be far less than reported if several students didn't break cover and retreat after running out of ammunition during the drill. Most of the hits occurred when this happened. Proper use of cover almost eliminated the chances of being hit. One other critical statistic needs to be noted. 13% of the hits across all phases of the experiment struck the hands or guns of the person at which they were fired. This indicates a strong focus on the threat being directed against the shooter and a lack of attention to the front sight creating some implications for future training. These shooters are strongly indoctrinated in the use of their weapon sights for most shooting situations. Even when shooting fast, they generally utilize a flash sight picture when shooting on targets. Even with extensive practice, very few students reported seeing their sights in this experiment. Not wanting to bring up the dreaded point shooting versus sight fired, sighted fired debate in the forum, I'll simply say that we as trainers need to do some more work. We need to find a better solution to allow our students to hit their targets with a greater percentage of rounds during the stressful, fast-evolving nature of a gunfight. Whatever that solution is, be it training and pointing, point shooting techniques, an enhanced sighted shooting curriculum, or stress inoculating scenarios-based training, it is our collective responsibilities as trainers to find it. It was interesting to note that some of the shooters in the above experiment shot with only one hand despite doing the majority of their training from a two-handed platform. When asked why they had done this, most were unaware that they had fired one-handed. Their body seemed to be on autopilot. 
self-selecting what was perceived to be the fastest way to get their guns on target. This fact, combined with the prevalence of hits on the hands or guns of the shooters, indicates that we should focus much more of our time training one-hand shooting, hand transitions, and support hand shooting techniques. We should also emphasize the importance of carrying secondary weapons in case our primary gun becomes inoperative after taking a bullet. Overall, this experiment generates more questions than it does answers. I set two very critical limits in this experiment, a 15-foot separation distance and the firing of two rounds per shooter. I chose the distance because a large percentage of law enforcement officers are killed while facing gunmen at this range or even closer. For this study, it seemed an appropriate balance between a range that was so close that hits were virtually guaranteed and one that was too far for the Code Eagle projectiles to be effective. It is likely that the results would be somewhat different if the ranges were altered. Similarly, firing more or fewer rounds will probably change the results. Who knows what to expect when variables such as multiple attackers are injected into the equation. The true value of this experiment may not be the data obtained, but the experience given to the students. They received a chance to see for themselves what techniques worked and which were not as successful. I do not expect anyone to alter their tactical doctrines or teaching styles as a result of this article. I only encourage all trainers to examine the tactics they present to their students and be willing to put them to the test in a somewhat more chaotic environment than the traditional square range. It is only this type of thorough examination that will promote a greater understanding of tactical issues and, in the process, save our students' lives. All right, so I guess a couple of implications here, because I know that he's, uh, you know, he's highly read by other law enforcement uh, officials. But uh, just for our sakes here, uh, a couple of things. Uh, the movement piece. If you are in a gunfight, uh, you know, the more that you move, the less likely you're going to be hit. And, you know, part of that is that you want to make sure that you survive. Uh, you just don't want to stand up straight and go toe-to-toe with someone that's firing at you. So the movement and then even moving to concealment, if you can, that's a, that's a big deal. So uh, something that we always need to remember. The other thing is that these guys here were highly trained. I mean, they've gone through extensive training here. And even they didn't realize that when they were in that high stressful situation and knowing that you're only getting shot by a paintball, although there is that that sting that comes along with it, even that that stressful of a situation, they kind of went on autopilot, like uh, Greg was saying here. And some of them even were firing with with one hand, even after all the training. And so very, you know, that's very important there. And uh, that's one reason, you know, people talk about getting firearms training and these guys were getting serious firearm training. And so um, even with the uh, the that advanced training, you know, your your body still wants to uh, go into that fight or flight mode, and you really have to fight against that. And uh, man, I I don't know. I mean, I guess it's training, 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 training that that finally builds that into you. So uh, you know, that's that's that aspect as well. And then the third one is just going to the range and uh, shooting your gun, you know, straight down the the gun range. I mean, that's good to keep your firearms in good working condition. Uh, and you know you definitely want to continue doing that, and you always hear that uh, that shooting uh, firearms training is a perishable skill, and so you want to you know stay up to date on that. But uh, definitely there is a reason or to have more advanced training. Uh, I, I I believe so. 
And even if there was a way that could be more affordable and to where you weren't just blowing a lot. I mean, I know that that's some people's uh, problem is going to the firing range. You're, you're paying for the training, then you're paying for the ammo. And then that's just, you know, that can be kind of expensive. So uh, I wonder if there are other drills that you can do that will help with this. Um, definitely. I mean, nothing's going to, uh, nothing's going to substitute for the type of training here that Greg did. Uh, I think that was kind of cool, but still, I mean, that's, uh, that would be something to, to kind of consider and something to look out for if someone could do that and, and had some ideas out there. I think uh, that would be kind of popular after reading something like this, right? Uh, I think so. So guys, that's over at activeresponsetraining.net. Uh, again, activeresponsetraining.net. Uh, stand, move, or seek cover. What works in a gunfight? There's some pictures here, and uh, you know Greg has uh, a lot of great information there as well. All right, guys, let's go ahead and jump to our second article. It comes to us from askaprepper.com, and this is this is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I I believe that uh, you know when I look at the demographics in the preparedness community, and I've talked about that before. There's older people. I've done uh, various demographic studies. And they're just older people in, you know, my age is from my age on up to you know mid, mid 60s, late 60s are, are the majority. And so, you know, there there is that idea that we're going to have older people that are preppers and that have a lot to give. But some people don't value them. Right. Or they don't feel like they they can contribute because they are having, you know, they have trouble moving or, uh, you know, there's a lack of money um, or, you know, what, whatever reason there, there might be. And so, you know, this is, again, one of those things that's, that's uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I think it's very important. If you are, you know, you are a family and you have family members who are older and they are open to prepping, man, you've got, uh, you've got some great wisdom there. And so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about this because even if you're not in a situation where you are, uh, you know, possibly starting a, a group, a survival group, or maybe you have you don't have one, or that's not even in the horizon right now for you. Having someone who is older and has that wisdom is very beneficial. And so let's go ahead and start reading this one from askaprepper.com. Here we go. There are no age limits on prepping. Being prepared is a state of mind, and it's one you can have no matter how old you are. Maybe you're getting on a bit in years, but you still have a life to live. And you want to make sure you can carry on with it no matter what the world throws at you. If that's how you feel, then prepping is for you. It's not so easy for a senior citizen to prepare, though. You have a lot of experience, but you probably don't get around as easily as you used to, and the chances are you're taking regular medication. There's a lot you can do on your own, but some things are best left to younger people. That means it's much easier to be part of a group. Unfortunately, some prepper groups tend to view older people as a burden and they're reluctant to let them join. In fact, many seniors themselves think they'd be a burden and they'd rather do what they can on their own than inconvenience a group. These are plenty widespread attitudes and on the surface you can understand them, but I believe they're way off target. The truth is seniors can be a huge asset to any group. If you're part of a group that's deciding whether or not to allow older people to join or a retiree who's unsure whether they should look for a group, read on. 
I'm going to explain why being rich in years does not mean being poor in prepping skills. So experience beats enthusiasm. Seniors might not have the energy of a young person, but they have a lot more knowledge to fall back on. And knowledge is a powerful tool. It's especially powerful if the elder prepper has younger people around who can listen to their advice and put it into action. The senior knows what needs to be done. The juniors have the physical fitness to do it. It's a perfect example of synergy when young and old working together can achieve much more than they could have on their own. Older people have, just by virtue of having lived longer, encountered more situations than the young. They've built up large, sometimes vast mental databases of problems and how they solve them. This is all knowledge that can be adapted to the new problems that will face us post-SHTF. Hey guys, let me just say something really quick here as I'm thinking about this. This is one of those things in education that we call schema, so in background knowledge. And so you're adding to what you know, and then you build upon that. And so you might see a problem, and you might not know exactly how to fix that problem, but you have experienced some other time in the past a problem that was kind of similar to it. So you apply the, the understanding that you had in that, uh, that first uh, way that you solved that problem. You can take that knowledge, and if you can apply it, you apply it. And so you don't have to go through those learning curves, right? And so an older person, that's, that's what I loved about this paragraph right here. An older person has a lot of that kind of knowledge. So they might be looking at a situation, and they might not have directly ever uh, solved that problem. But they might have worked on another situation that was kind of similar where they could draw from that knowledge and apply it to this knowledge. Whereas someone who's never seen that problem before is starting from scratch and asking all the questions like, where where do I even start? And so I think that's very powerful there. All right, so let's go ahead and move on. The experience of age isn't just about getting by with fewer household appliances. There are a lot of retired combat vets in the USA and there are people who learn a lot of valuable lessons. Of course, younger vets have fought battles just as hard as the ones in Southeast Asia, but they had a lot more technology to support them. Someone who spent a year as a light infantryman in a Shao Valley knows what it's like to fight for their life with nothing but what they can carry on their back. That mental attitude alone is valuable, never mind the practical skills they learn and probably will never forget. You know, you know what I'm thinking about right now is uh, the movie The Postman with Kevin Costner, and uh, when uh, you know all the the postmen are starting to fight back, uh, and they have that older that older man who was uh, a veteran, and he's showing all the young kids how to you know do booby traps and all that kind of stuff, and that just kind of popped into my mind there. Um, another benefit of age is a tendency to evaluate a situation before rushing in. Uh, The young are often impulsive. The old have learned to think before they act. That can be a priceless asset in a stressful situation. A respected senior can restrain the group from doing something rash and encourage people to evaluate what's going on before drawing on their experience to come up with a solution. Self-reliance is a dying art. Most people today just aren't very self-reliant. Preppers are swimming against that trend, but the younger ones among us are still products of the modern heavily interdependent consumer society. We want to do more for ourselves, but we don't always have the skills we need to actually do them. Of course, 
We can learn those skills and a big part of successful prepping is doing just that. But the reality is that for most preppers, self-reliance is a new outlook. We're picking up as we go. For many seniors, it's what they grew up with. Even just a few decades ago, most people did a lot more for themselves. They did more for their own repairs around the house, patched old clothes, made new ones, fixed up broken appliances, and played shade tree mechanics when their car broke down. If you have a modern car, there's no point even looking under the hood. Most likely, all all you'll see is a plastic engine shield with a port for a diagnostic computer. Man, isn't that the truth? Uh, If you've grown up on modern cars, you probably haven't done much work on them yourself. But a lot of the mechanicals under that shield are the same as they've always been, and a handy old-timer can still fix the timing or change a plug just as well as he always could. He grew up in a world where people replaced their own fan belts. Young people didn't. Survival is multi-generational. In the drive to be as prepared for a crisis as you can be, it's easy to overlook the fact that you might need to do more than satisfy basic needs. If you're in a small group, it's going to be all you can do to keep yourself secure. Provide a decent level of comfort and provide necessities like food, fuel, and water. A group of reasonably well-prepared adults in the right place and with the right equipment can sustain themselves indefinitely. But sustain yourself for what? If you're lucky, the crisis will last for a period of a few weeks to a few years before order is restored and society starts to rebuild. But what if it doesn't? Some scenarios like a full-scale nuclear exchange or a powerful enough EMP attack could do enough damage that the USA is finished as a political entity. The system, battered by the attack itself, would simply disintegrate under the pressure of trying to cope with the aftermath. Tens of millions would die and the rest would fragment into small communities and many individuals just trying to get by. It took thousands of years for humanity to produce today's American society. But unless a significant number of preppers are forward-thinking enough, two or three generations will be enough to take us back to neo to the Neolithic period with illiterate savages prowling superstitiously through the ruins of our civilization. To avoid that, someone's going to have to educate the next generation, and the old are the perfect people to do that. If your group members have kids, it's vital that they get an education. Of course, they need to do their share of everyday tasks, but they need to learn to read and write, do at least basic math, and pick up any other knowledge they can. Without that, they'll never be able to maintain the assets you pass on to them. Never mind, grow them. The main thing seniors bring to a group is knowledge and experience. They'll have the time and especially the patience to pass that on to children. When older people were at school, they also learned by simple but effective methods that are a lot easier to pass on than today's overcomplicated education theory. By bringing the older generation into your group, you're maximizing the chances of the next generation to survive and rebuild the sort of society you want them to live in. All right, guys, that's a great article there. There's 61 comments over here at askaprepper.com. And I always recommend that you look at comments. You can learn a whole lot from what people have to say. And so I hope you, you, you're starting to understand that uh, you know having a, a senior in your family or in a group uh, even if they're not preparedness minded, right? They're, they might not be preparedness minded at all, but they'll have experience. And so the people that are in their 60s and the 70s were children of 
people who lived in the in the Great Depression uh, during the Great Depression. And so, you know, I'm thinking of you know, like my parents, and and they they have the stories. They even uh, still probably you know their parents chose to live with some of those you know the Great Depression. Uh, the, that depression era marked them, and so they still carried on some of those things, always wondering in the back of their mind if there ever was going to be another Great Depression, and so they kind of carried those things on with them, and so, uh, you know, parents who, or people that are in their 60s and 70s, uh, you know, still, might still remember a lot of those types of things, and, and definitely uh, apply them as well, and so uh, I, th- I just think it's, it's something important, and I always recommend if there's anybody out there who is, uh, uh, who likes to write and has insight here for seniors, I would welcome any article that you have and I'll post it on edthatmatters.com and link to it on Prepper website and then uh, read it on the podcast because I think this is a topic that needs to be shared and needs to be uh, put out there. In fact, I think that's a topic, uh, senior preparedness. You know what? That is a topic I'm going to add to the forums, uh, to the Prepper website forums. So uh, I'm just, I'm glad I just thought of that one. I think that's important. Uh, and so if any other webmasters are out there, you know, articles on this uh, on this topic, I think, are very, very important as well. And so, guys, if you you know, we talk about micro biz and I wasn't planning on doing this. But, uh, you know, if you are an older person and maybe you like, hey, I, I'm looking for something to do. I'd like to maybe Todd, I'd like to do a micro business like you talked about in yesterday's episode. And, uh, you know. You you know the the things that you're going through. So if you're a senior, you know the 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 pain points. You know the issues that you're facing. You know the things that are running through your your mind. You have friends maybe in that same situation. You are probably getting like materials like from AARP and insurance. Uh, you know you're making insurance decisions and all those kinds of things, medical decisions, and and so all those things you can bring in to preparedness. And and right from a preparedness standpoint, and so I think that is would be very very useful in the preparedness community. So my other idea would be along with those lines is you know hit some of those hit some of those websites that are just for seniors, right? Uh, that that uh, that you know they write just for seniors. So even if it's aarp.com or .org or whatever uh, that website is. Or any other website that is is just geared towards seniors and senior living, you take that information, and I'm not saying plagiarize, but you take that information and then you apply it to preparedness. And so you you write, uh, you know th- that those articles that you'll find on there will give you the ideas to write, uh, you know that that type of article, but coming from the preparedness side of, of things. And so I think that would be, I mean, you, there's a lot of content out there that someone who wanted to write for seniors uh, could find and could start to apply. So anyway, that's a, there you go. There's a, another micro biz idea. All right, guys, because it is uh, the Thursday podcast, we do a conflicted scenario. And so I'm going to go ahead and read that one for you here. And here it goes. At the local trading post, a man recognizes you for someone who turned him and his family away when he came begging for help. He starts to yell in the middle of the trading post that he'll sell information about your bug out location to the highest bidder. There are about 300 people doing business there as the scenario unfolds. He claims to know your guard rotation schedule, how many people you have in the camp, and the type of supplies you have in storage. People are starting to notice the commotion. It's time for you to do something. How would you handle this situation? All right, let me go ahead and read it one more time. 
At the local trading post, a man recognizes you for someone who turned him and his family away when he came begging for help. He starts to yell in the middle of the trading post that he'll sell information about your bug out location to the highest bidder. There are about 300 people doing business there are there as this scenario unfolds. He claims to know your guard rotation schedule, how many people you have in the camp, and the type of supplies you have in storage. People are starting to notice the commotion. It's time for you to do something. How would you handle this situation? Guys, so you, uh, like always, you have a couple of different options. If you want, you just, you know, go through that scenario in in your mind and like, hey, how would I handle this situation? Uh, You can talk it through with someone. Uh, Maybe you're riding in the car and you're playing the podcast and you can share it with, uh, you know, someone and and say, hey, what what do you think? What would be the the best thing here? Uh, Maybe bring it up at lunch, you know, uh, with, with some buddies that you have. And then the other thing is, is if you'd like to share your scenario or how you would uh, take care of the scenario, you can come over to edthatmatters.com. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Like I link to all the other articles as well. And uh, you can come over to Ed That Matters and uh, drop what, what you would do in, uh, in the comment section. All right. Well, everyone, that is it for episode 296. To subscribe to the show, head on over to the Prepper website, podcast.com. That way you never miss another episode of sweet prepper goodness and take a moment to connect with me. I have a ton of ways to connect in the show notes. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.